I saw a Spanish uh, a Spanish magician. He was really good. He said, Uno, dos, and disappeared without a tres. Hello, hello, and welcome to The F Word, a podcast all about the magical world of web standards, browsers, and everything in between. I'm Bruce Lawson, and I'm coming to you from the planet Saturn this week. I'm Vadim, and I have no idea where I am. This is normal, folks. And we have a special guest, Mr. Thomas Steiner. Steiner? I've never actually tried to pronounce your surname. Well, most English people say Steiner. In German, it's Steiner. I'm dialed in from the sun right now. It's a super hot place where I'm at. So, yeah. Hi, nice to be here. Lovely. I hope you got your factor 9 million sun cream on. I'm very, 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 very 50-plus sunscreen person, yes. Well, I'm going on holiday next week, so I've got my factor 50 in my bag, ready to go off to sunny Turkey and uh, eat my own body weight in olives and feta cheese. You both sound so smart, I always leave my sunscreen behind, so, and regret about that. So, Thomas, what do you do? Introduce yourself, please. So, what is it actually you would say you do here? <laughs> well, I am working on the Chrome team as a developer relations engineer, and um, my core responsibilities up until now have been Project Fugu. And um, I recently took on WebAssembly as well. And um, yeah, the two go pretty well together, actually. And um, Project Fugu um, is all about enabling people to do things on the web that they couldn't before by adding new APIs, adding new features, making just the browser as capable as it needs to be for people's application needs. Excellent. And you said you sit in the Chrome team rather than the Android team, for example. Why is that? Well, um, we talk to Android for sure, and um, there is a Chrome team within Android. There's Android people in the Chrome team and vice versa and so on. But yeah, so I uh, am part of the Chrome developer relations team, which mostly also means web relations. So if I only did Chrome relations, this would not mean I would do my job properly, because in the end, um, we're all team web. And um, yeah, that's why I'm based in the Chrome team. Gotcha. And and Fugu, is its basic premise to allow browsers to do anything that a device can do? Or, or what's the overarching vision before we drill down into the specifics? So I would say anything-ish. So there's a couple <laughs> of like red lines that we decided to not cross. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them being direct sockets, which, which would allow you to um, essentially tunnel through any kind of message through corporate firewalls and stuff. So there's some red lines that we draw, but um, if you have an app idea, we want you to be able to realize this app idea on the web. Gotcha. And uh, why is it called Fugu? Because somebody told me or suggested over a few pints that maybe um, somebody had said, well, web shouldn't be able to do that. And everybody went, fuck you. And that's where the, the name came from, true or false? <laughs> that's. Uh, I think we should change the story just to to this um i haven't heard that before but um so the story that i was told is a little less uh attractive and a little less fun but also it's kind of fun still so compared so you know this episode where um Homer Simpson eats fugu, mm-hmm. and um, people tell him, look, there's this fish, and uh, if you cut it right, it's a delicacy. If you cut it wrong, it will kill you. And of course, Homer thinks, um, yeah, he's going to die. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. And uh, 
that's essentially what we hope people don't do when they use Fugu APIs. So just like with FuguFish, um, some of these APIs can be potentially dangerous. Like there's file system access. And if you open something like et cetera passwords and uh, a web application messes with it, um, this would be very bad for your uh, computer and could potentially kill you. Like in reality, actually, you can't. So there's a couple of just system files that we block out from editing um, or even opening. Um, but yeah, so that's the um, the story that I was told. So we want to make sure that with these APIs, we acknowledge that they can be potentially dangerous. So we want to make sure that people hold them right, cut the fugu fish right. And um, yeah, that's why we came to the project name. That's an excellent name, actually. I, I admire that, you know, acknowledging that these things are very powerful, but also potentially dangerous. Uh, you mentioned mostly hardware APIs being the main focus of this project, but there's also a Houdini project, for example, another another uh, interesting name. Uh, where's the line goes between a Houdini project and Fuga project, for example? Do, do you see it? Does it exist? So I'm not an expert on Houdini. I, I don't know where the project name came from. Um, the way I understand Houdini is it's about stuff in CSS, like enabling people to do more amazing things with CSS. Not just CSS, but uh, like opening this, this black box of a browser to uh, allow more APIs to be available to developers. So basically, Houdini comes from this, like getting out of black box as a magician. So allowing developers to have more control uh, over APIs and browser internals. So it's ideologically close to Fugu in, in some ways, but I think there, there's a line between them. Uh, I guess Houdini is mostly focused on CSS and probably JavaScript, but not hardware APIs. Did I get it right? Or um, I, I don't want to really speak for the Houdini folks um, within Google, but like the way I understand it is um, they're looking mostly at CSS and uh, what people can do with uh, with the language and like, I don't know, animate uh, properties properly by saying this is uh, a length so you can express something and then access it via javascript and the browser will know this is a length that i'm modifying so um yeah i do lengthy things things with it and not i don't know any kind of uh, dimension things or whatever so um but like back to the original question um css houdini um and project fugu they're distinct teams within google there's distinct people who work on them in the end of course you need probably both when you build a web application but yeah fugu is definitely not just about um, hardware apis it's also about file apis clipboard apis um system operating system integration like letting you uh, double click a file in windows explorer and then your web application would open or having you share something from a web application to a native application or vice versa so it's also about integrating with different um, parts of your computer so basically bridging the gap between uh, websites and uh, uh, native applications so we use the term bridging the gap a lot but mostly in the sense of bridging the api gap so looking at native when you build for iOS, when you build for Android, when you build for Windows, macOS, whatever, there's an SDK um, or there's just a set of APIs that you that you build against. Um, when you compare those, certain things used to be um, just not accessible from the web. So um, you used to not be able to, for example, copy an image into the clipboard, which is a very natural thing to do if you think like uh, you're an, an image editor. Up until now, there was only this uh, very weird um, DOM document exact whatever I, I even don't know the name of this archaic api to do clipboard it was not possible just to do certain things um, we um, used to call this the api gap that we wanted to bridge with uh, the fugu project a note to listeners who are not um like vadim and thomas and me you know basically you old men who look like gandalf 
Um, there was a time not so long ago when basically you couldn't access anything in hardware. In fact, I think Vadim was already working Opera, and I certainly was in 2010 when the geolocation API got um, standardized with partly with the help of our old boss, Large Eric Bolstad. Um, and that was kind of the first time that any hardware access was available to web stuff. And that's only 13 years ago. We've come a long way since then. It seems to me, though, Thomas, that making everything that's possible in hardware, barring the red lines, available to web browsers is a pretty big job. And they've given you WASM as well. How do you find the time? Where do you prioritize? Uh, do you have legions of C++ people obeying your every command? Or how does it work? You need to differentiate between doing DevRel on things and being an engineer on features. So um, I don't personally build um, stuff in Chrome. So some of my colleagues, like, for example, Francois, uh, he actually is a Chrome uh, engineer, apart from being a DevRel person. So um, that's what, what separates us. I just have the pleasure of working with all these amazing engineers. And um, they explain things uh, to me in a way that I can explain them to developers. As a web person having no idea of uh, C, C++, Rust, and all these cool languages that people use to build native applications, it's like, oh, what even is Emscripten trying to tell me? So it's a lot of uh, just uh, using the Google search engine uh, to find any kind of traces, which would me as a JavaScript developer help me understand what is uh, C trying to tell me here. So that's kind of the, the things that I'm working on. But um, you're right, it's a, it's a very time-consuming job. And um, in the end, yeah, we, we need to prioritize uh, certain things. So there's just also things we can't address or where we uh, would ask uh, the engineers to help us out, for example, write more reference kind of uh, documentation, um, which is not developer-facing articles in the sense of being a nice blog post to read, but like more... Yeah, as I said, uh, reference material that you would expect on something like MDN. Gotcha. Uh, for listeners, Thomas mentioned the Google search engine. Other search engines are available. We, we were actually told to never say to Google because this might harm the brand. So each of us uh, typically get trained to say to use the Google search engine. And uh, <laughs> you use whatever you like, uh, DuckDuckGo or Bing. Um, dare you but uh, like this is just uh, to google may not be used as a word because it would weaken the google brand that's right yeah if it becomes a generic term it's no longer uh, it's no longer copyright you can ask lajlo biro and mr hoover about that Thomas, uh, where priorities for the Fugu project are coming from? I can imagine that you're, as a DevRel, you're uh, looking for inspiration or needs of the community. I can see that inside of Google, there are some projects like Google Meet that we're using right now to, in this call, or like Google Docs or YouTube or some other uh, internal clients that you're trying to solve, the, solve their problems with the Fugu project. Any, any other directions? Am I right about those two? Um, you're absolutely right. So it's always a mix of internal partners. Um, yeah, so you mentioned uh, Google Meet. There's external partners. Um, for example, Adobe. We've been very open about our collaboration with Adobe. There's just developers in general, which is, uh, I guess, the most pleasant part for most of us because every one of us is a developer at heart. There's also just the developer community and they work at shops big and small. They work at massive corporations. They may be independent consultants. So it's a mix of 
trying to make everyone happy, um, internal partners, um, in the end, they tend to have sort of the same needs. So um, taking the example of uh, Google Meet, because you mentioned it, uh, so something um, hardware-ish that they work on or that they need is um, the uh, capability of talking to headphones. So Google Meet is used in a lot of uh, uh, call centers and uh, people need to mute their phones, uh, the, the microphones while they are getting information from their seed neighbor or something, or they use uh, Fugu APIs now to uh, talk to certain um, headphones that have these capabilities. So they press a button on um, their headphones, and this will be translated to a hit message that goes to Google Meet and mutes um, the thing in software. That's just a, uh, an example randomly chosen from Google Meet. And obviously, if you think uh, Microsoft Teams or uh, Zoom or like all these other calling applications, they have the same hardware needs in the end, or like they might just discover after one of their uh, competitors uses um, these kind of features that they actually want to have this as well. That's an API for that in the Fugu pantheon. Um, so for this particular thing, um, you always are with this compromise with uh, like how specific to the task do you make the API? Like you could imagine something like a, a headphone mute API, or you could just make it as generic as possible, which is what they have chosen in this case. So there's the uh, HID uh, protocol, HID, uh, human interface device, I think. Uh, yeah. So these devices talk using, using a protocol called HID. The web HID API, as the name suggests, makes this protocol uh, accessible from web applications. So the thing there is you always need to understand what is the low-level HIT message that a certain headphone requires to send, uh, to, uh, requires you to send in order to mute, for example, the, the headphone microphone or something. So it's harder for people to understand what is going on because you need to reverse engineer the protocol or you need to be the manufacturers. So you know what's going on. Uh, ask someone who has done the job, like uh, a lot of um, open source drivers in Linux, for example, can serve as the source for getting these kind of underlying bytes that you need to send over the wire to talk to certain devices. So yeah, that's, I think, the, the gist there. Some time ago, I remember uh, giving a talk about web Bluetooth, like uh, seven years ago or something like that, like the first implementation in Google Chrome. And I remember uh, buying some devices like a small small uh, drone, a small uh, lamp, some other uh, low energy Bluetooth devices. And uh, there was no way to to tell how to connect. I mean, there was a way to connect to them, but there was no way to tell which, which uh, commands to send to trigger certain events. And I remember spending like days trying to figure out what they're sending. So basically, I was like pressing buttons, switching modes, and uh, logging all the data, and then reverse engineering what they're doing, actually, and then sending it via, via browser. Is it become easier these days? Or we we're, we're still need to reverse engineer all those commands to fully work with the hardware? It is still pretty hard, I would say, in most cases, just because um, you are not the manufacturer. The manufacturer knows what they're sending, what, what is required to send. I will tell you an anecdote. So we got solar and I'm really excessive about tracking usage. We have um, wall box in our uh, garage. I'm trying to make the juice box uh, stop charging the car when there's not enough sun. So there's several levels of uh, hardware interactions happening there. The easiest one is uh, I have a little web light connected to a permanent monitor that just uh, turns green when I'm producing enough and turns red when I'm uh, consuming more than I'm producing. Um, so that's the easy part. When you're talking to these other devices, uh, even if they are on the local network, and I could in theory just sniff the traffic is a lot harder just because of certificate pinning and all these stupid things that uh, manufacturers do to close down their applications 
So I try to uncompile or decompile the Android app and see what's going on there. I try to sniff the traffic, but I, it's, it's just really ridiculously hard to do that in many cases. And um, eventually um, what we hope for is uh, manufacturers to just to begin with open up their uh, protocols. And um, a company that is very open about this is, is Lego, actually. So um, Lego, with their models, they just chose to uh, use Bluetooth and WebSerial and all these uh, cool hardware APIs now for um, their educational robots. And um, they open up the protocol. So um, you can just go to the Lego website, um, and somewhere there you will find a PDF that lists um, the hacks, whatever bytes and bits that you need to send around. They tell you this, whatever, opens the device for communication. This then allows you to send um, a light signal. This allows you to uh, send a signal to the motors, whatever. So in the end, um, we do hope that these APIs eventually will cause more more manufacturers to open up their protocols. And um, especially the hardware APIs are strong in the Tinkerer uh, communities, like the, the Arduino kind of people. They are used to this anyways. And um, like Arduino, all these companies, Northern Semiconductor, there's a lot of really cool companies um, that base their business, partly at least, uh, on these open protocols and um, uh, enabling, enabling people to talk to, the, to these devices that they own. Since we're touched briefly on the people that are not so happy about opening their APIs and uh, about this this project Fugu maybe, let's dive deeper. Um, there are definitely parties involved in standardization and uh, browser engines that are not happy about this project and their their goals. Maybe they, they don't mind that your goals, but they're against some specifics of, of the implementation or they draw different red lines, not just web sockets. And uh, they're not happy implementing all, all those uh, new shiny things, specifically Apple and uh, Mozilla. Can you talk about the, their, their position and their, uh, their priorities and their point of view on that? Um, so I can to some extent. Uh, obviously, I'm not a, an Apple employee. I'm not a Mozilla employee. But the way we communicate with them um, in a publicly traceable way is uh, through their standards position um, repositories. So there's um, a process now in place where if you want to get the opinion of a browser vendor on something, um, you open an issue. Um, it's pretty much the same for Mozilla and Apple. Asking them, hey, we have this proposal that does this and that. You point at uh, your spec draft. You point at your explainer. You outline some use cases, and then you just ask for an on, on, on opinion. And because all of this is public on GitHub, these opinions are as uh, yeah as public as as the company wants them to be. So there might be a back channel sometimes where uh, we get some more insights. But like um, yeah, sometimes very very uh, heated uh, debates started on some of the proposals where people just tell, I don't know, Mozilla is something that I remember. Recently, um, they tell Mozilla, hey, you should really open up your browser for this and that API. I think it was uh, Bluetooth um, that uh, yeah, people get very enthusiastic about. Yeah, sometimes the uh, Mozilla folks or the Apple folks need to lock an issue if the discussion just becomes too derailed and too passionate and sometimes people just don't respect the tone of, of a public discussion. So that, that's also, um, unfortunately, sometimes the case. But yeah, I think it's way more open than it used to be in the past. And um, by making public traceable statements about something um, that they like or dislike for whatever reason, this gives us and developers in general way more ways to understand why certain decisions are being taken. And um, there's obviously still like at some level 
a corporation thing that plays into um, the decisions that um, certain web engineers can make. But yeah, in general, the the way communication happens now is is very open, and I'm I'm kind of happy about this. We'll put a link to that uh, GitHub repo in the in the show notes because. I, I agree, it's great. Back in our day, it used to be sort of you'd, you'd have to read chicken bones to work out what you thought Mozilla might be thinking about something. Actually, no, Mozilla's always been pretty open, but the uh, the fruit cone Cupertino, it was um, it was Kremlinology or Pyongyangology somewhat. To your knowledge, Thomas, which, which of the Fugu APIs are in Firefox, for example, and which ones have they said, absolutely not, no way? I could look it up, but it's much nicer to hear it from from you. Oh, that's a like very open ended question. Just because there's so many Fugu APIs, I think in general, what um, Mozilla and Apple and Google agree on is um, that the web is more than just a document web. But to what extent it is an app web? Um, this is where um, some debate starts. So, in general, copying, for example, an image into an application or out of an application, that's something that um, we universally agree on. Like there might be small differences. Um, so copying images tends to be a dangerous operation. Sometimes if there's certainly prepared images um, that tend to be uh, so-called compression bombs, for example. So people might be more or less open to copying certain image formats. Um, but in general, the use case is a, an agreed on use case where we universally say, yeah, this this should be just something people can do. And uh, obviously, having something like an image editor or video editor, this is not a document web. This is a, this is a web app web. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are some use cases, yeah, the hardware APIs, where um, the browser vendors have different opinions. Um, luckily, there's there's some movement. So, for example, um, Web MIDI is a pretty old API by now. Um, it technically even predates the Fugu effort but allows you to connect um, your musical instruments that use the MIDI standard to your web browser. And um, this was a Chrome-only API for the longest time. More recently, Firefox have opened up this API, but the way they chose to do this is by sort of on the fly creating an extension that would deal with some of the communication, and um, you would have to opt in and say, I want to really uh, allow this musical instrument to connect to my browser. Whereas in Chrome, it's a simple regular permission prompt without any on-the-fly extension that is going to be installed or anything. And then um, Apple, they chose to not implement this API for the moment. Um, I'm not sure about their, their uh, reasoning uh, about it um, at the moment out of the top of my head. But um, yeah, there's just certain hardware APIs where um, Apple have said very publicly, we will never, ever implement those. Um, but there's also some more um, like innocent-ish APIs one of them, uh, idle detection. The core idea of this API is um, it gives the browser a way to tell if you're using your computer or not, and not just um, by detecting mouse movements inside of the browser window, but also by detecting mouse movements, for example, outside. So this is a heuristic that if you are outside of your browser and using your computer, that then you are sort of actively still behind your machine. The way this is meant to be used is... Um, for a kind of chat application. So you uh, rem- you might remember from uh, ICQ, for example, um, the green bubble meant you're online, um, the red bubble meant you're offline. Um, you could be gray and be away and like having these kind of uh, notifications. And of course, if you're outside of your browser, but still using your uh, computer, playing a game, you're technically still actively using your computer. Of course, the abuse there is um, potentially um, like, if you want to track someone and uh, if you want to tell if someone is actively working in the browser or um, just 
pretending to be on their computer, but actually not working in the browser, that's an abuse vector. You can think of a way like you talk to different um, sites in parallel as a tracker. And then if you see the person goes idle at a specific time and this idle um, message coincides at the same time from both browser tabs, you can say, oh, this must be the same person that's using this website. So there's some mitigations in place, like um, there will be some randomness when uh, idle uh, idleness will be reported to different browser tabs. The potential is there for this to be abused. Um, so they also used um, this as a as an explanation why they would not implement the idle detection API. And and also, you know, um, let's be fair, every browser vendor has a different constituency of users or different levels of risk aversion, um, and and that's to be celebrated. You know, it's not it's not the law that everybody has to implement everything, um, particularly when like a, a privacy thing. You know, I mean. Dawkins forbid that my employer should know that I'm uh, actually looking at Pornhub instead of um, their fascinating documentation. Not that I do, of course, and other porn sites are available, folks. Uh, go- you can Google it. Uh, sorry, you can use the Google search engine. <laughs> or DuckDuckGo. <laughs> I mean, the difference or being celebrated is a good thing, but, uh, you know, uh, for the most other web platform feature, uh, consensus used to be a key to moving forward for before writing any specs, before starting any implementations. But at some point, Chrome decided, not just for Fugu APIs, but for, for some others, uh, decided to just move forward with implementation and then wait for others to catch up. So I, I was wondering if you're actively working on convincing other engines to support Fugu APIs or you're just, during design process, I mean, or you're just implement something and waiting for them to catch up or for the community to, to convince them? To be fair, I would say... Um this may be the impression that external people get um, who are not in-depth following these APIs. But um, I think it's also um, a problem that we as uh, DevRel um, needed to address in the past. So there have always been paper trails of um, people writing specs, people uh, thinking about how can a certain feature work. Something just landing, this is really um, not the way it works, um, actually never did. But um, the impression that could be created externally, um, to some extent, yes, um, that, that's a fair uh, concern. Um, this could have been uh, the case that this uh, impression uh, appears. But like what we in uh, DevRel did recently is, or like for the longest time now, um, we try to um, always make these uh, paper trails that exist more visible. So if you see a blog post that announces a new API, at the end of the blog post, there will always be a related links section that points out um, spec discussions and uh, W3C tag discussions where regular um, person, uh, lay persons who don't really follow browser development uh, closely can still see, oh, there actually has been some discussion about this. This didn't just uh, fall from heaven. Um, there is actually some, some paper trail of discussion that happened around this. For your concrete question, do we talk to other browser vendors? Um, yes, uh, as I said before, there's these... Uh, repositories where we try to get um, standards arguments on or standards positions on certain um, standards proposals, you will see uh, as part of the Blink uh, shipping process, it's actually required to ask other vendors, um, other browser vendors for their positions. It's even um, now mandatory to ask developers, like what is what is the general developer perception um, of a new API proposal before it ships? And um, if, you link, if you look at uh, the Blink dev mailing list, um, there's always 
um, a very strict process of uh, how people um, ship something. So there's an intent to do uh, X and intent to do Y. So intent to ship, intent to uh, experiment, intent to deprecate. If you look for the uh, intent to uh, subjects, these are always the important emails on this mailing list um, because in these intents, there's always the paper trail linked again um, so people can see what the developers say about uh, a certain API. So you can go there and um, see the rational. Um, if you see um, Apple was positive and Mozilla was negative and developers were positive too, then this, uh, this is um, just a visible t- uh, paper trail that has been left on a certain API proposal. Yeah, it's, it's good to have paper trail. It's good to have discussions. But when the other browser engines do not agree and you still proceed with implementation and uh, and uh, specking the, those 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 new APIs, that's another thing. I mean, I'm sorry for pulling out this IE6 card right now. <laughs> but... Wait, wait, wait. What, what browser do you assign it to? Because that's the that's the most exciting part. Really. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's it's fair to to call browsers new IE6 any browsers. Safari. Uh, that's your very personal opinion. I don't think it is possible to be new IE6. Like it's been a long time ago, and times were different. Yeah. But still, they they used to they used to have numerous of API exclusive to IE. I recently discovered this legacy API page on MSDN library, uh, like conditional comments, uh, CSS expressions, behaviors, like DHTML data binding, and like VML, JScript, like the, the, they, even, they used to have a create pop-up. I've used all of these. Oh, God. Uh, so, yeah. And these days, there are many APIs exclusive to Chromium. And uh, not even all Chromiums, but sometimes exclusive to just Chrome because some browsers uh, based on Chromium decide to to not implement those or disable those. And uh, how is Fugu project different from IE times where, where Microsoft would implement whatever they want and then expect others to follow or not? They didn't care so much. I mean, I remember other browsers implementing like document.all just for the sake of compatibility and some other APIs. And we're, I think we got this text align justify first implemented in IE and other browsers without specification and others browsers browser followed, something like that. So they were definitely leading the way but they they didn't ask anyone else's opinions. I think that's the main difference. But what what others? Um, so I think we need to differentiate the early Wild Wild West days of the web, where um, it was really browser wars, like in the sense of like very negative uh, browser wars. We need to look uh, at these times differently than than the current times. So. Now, um, I guess all browser vendors have very strict uh, shipping processes. Some might be very open, like you can probably get uh, an insight into Mozilla's shipping process. You can definitely get an insight into uh, Chrome's shipping process. I'm not sure about Apple, um, but I am very sure that internally they have a process of how to uh, propose a new API uh, as well that they follow. In the end, um, I think what is what is important is innovation still is uh, a thing. So people um, use several different browsers for several different use cases, um, like geeks at least do. But even just like, I know anecdotes of people who use one browser just for banking and the other browser for um, browsing adult sites and yet another browser for using uh, as their day-to-day browser. I'm using Chrome exclusively for Google Meet uh, because it works better and uh, Firefox for, for for the rest of my tasks. But you're very much a geek, I would say. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. you are the minority. <laughs> oh, Fighting talk over here in the F-word corner. Vadim, a geek? (laughs) 
So uh, the point I was getting to is that uh, nowadays uh, we have very strict uh, shipping processes and uh, we follow those and uh, we talk to other browser vendors as part of this process. And the um, way this this is supposed to work, and I think also the way this actually does work, is um, we get a paper trail of things um, that um, happened until we got to uh, shipping an API. And um, we won't, most cases, not let other browser vendors sh- stop us from doing something. Um, there may just be different opinions that we agree to um, like disagree on. Um, I think that's a very fair um, point of uh, thing to do. Um, I guess it becomes a little problem problematic when um, you cannot really, as a user or as an end user technically, decide what should be um, the browser that you use. So I guess this is where um, this equation sort of uh, stops to work. But like on operating systems where you have full browser choice and full browser engine choice, this mechanism works. And you can say um, if you are a user who is uh, very afraid of uh, some websites talking to your hardware, then you can use a certain browser that does not implement these, those APIs. And if you are uh, a tinkerer and you know what's happening and um, you actually understand the protocols and uh, you, you can see that this will not kill your computer and the uh, kitten and whatever you have under your desk, then you can proceed and use uh, a browser that implements those APIs. So I think talking to other vendors um, is always a great idea and listening to them is always a great idea too. And um, in very cases, in many cases, actually going back to the drawing board and saying, um, look, um, they brought forward some arguments that our um, people didn't think about um, is a very much um, thing that, that is happening. Also, Sometimes just uh, saying, oh, um, we will just not ship something because in the end, um, it didn't meet the user's needs. It didn't meet uh, developer's needs. It may not be technically feasible anymore. Um, That's also part of the Fugu uh, uh, process in general. So just stopping something from happening is very much part of the project as well. So there's a couple of proposals that we thought were initially a good idea, but then trying them out with actual users uh, using origin trials or just behind the flag. Uh, as an implementation, we sometimes saw this is not addressing the use case that it's supposed to address. Or um, there's um, like notification triggers is a good example. Um, so the way this was supposed to work is um, you locally um, schedule a push notification that would not come from a server, but from local. And um, you uh, would then say to your calendar application, for example, um, the um, notification should be popping up five minutes before the meeting or something. The problem really is or was with, with this API um, the way this worked on Android changed significantly. So the Chrome team could no longer guarantee that the API that they were using on Android would be there in the future. So um, in the end, um, technical feasibility was one of the reasons um, where um, we said, look, um, it's probably the best to to stop this API. There's very valid use cases, but then the devil is in the details. Like uh, if you have an offline application, like an offline calendar, it's a great idea. But what if while you're online, the meeting gets canceled and you still receive um, the notification that is no longer relevant or the timing uh, shifts uh, to a half an hour later and you get uh, the, or that's probably not the, not the problem, but half an hour earlier and you miss the notification because you just happen to have been offline at this particular point in time. Um, so that's kind of the devil in the details, um, things that sometimes also just make us stop um, implementing something. And um, yeah, you can see the paper trail. Um, we started, we implemented, we wrote a blog post. Um, we asked other vendors, and um, yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work out and stops, and that's fine. Interesting the, the, what you mentioned about notification triggers, the, the concept that somebody might be offline. <laughs> baffling. <laughs> baffling idea. 
Well, this doesn't happen in the, you know, in the developed world, this doesn't happen. I'm also interested, Thomas, just, you know, doing a bit of Tupney Hapney psychology here, that uh, you accused Vadim of being a geek. But earlier you described yourself as a tinkerer. And uh, the assumption there that geek is bad, but tinkerer is good. What's the difference between tinkerer and geek? I would not say that I accused Vadim of being a geek. I would say... <laughs> we, we've, got, we've got the transcripts, mate. <laughs> I would say I applauded Vadim for being a geek. So the, the <laughs> thing that I was trying to convey is uh, Vadim is very, very happy to suffer, I guess, uh, just because he's a geek. So he knows computers are computers. And um, certain things will just sometimes not work, but he's happy to decompile an Android application to understand why it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work or he wants it to work. When I say geek to someone, this is very much not a negative thing. Wow, this is great. You're like the Henry Kissinger of dipl- of web diplomacy. Well done, sir. <laughs> very good. You mentioned the uh, web notifications, and um, I, I remember that uh, Apple recently uh, allowed websites to use Web Push API, but only if they're installed as web apps to to iOS as, uh, home screen. So basically, they limited the implementation of this API to a certain mode, and basically they said like if it's something that's installed, then it's a bit more secure. It's not a random website sending you push notifications or uh, tricking you into subscribing to one, but it's like something that you installed it yourself. They can still trick you into installing it, but that's another level. And uh, I guess they're, they're limiting potential of this API. I don't know. They probably have some reasoning behind this. Maybe they're uh, uh, trying to protect their iOS users or maybe App Store revenues, who knows. But I always thought this kind of... Uh, limitation of uh, APIs might be an answer for at least for Safari and Firefox. Like imagine this spectrum. On one hand, there is a Electron application with full access to everything, like basically as a native application, but it's running on web technologies. On the other side of the spectrum, there is a random website, like some spam or a malicious website. Somewhere in the middle, there's an installed PWA, and they all have their different domains or their different security models and they uh, different list of uh, available uh, Fugu APIs. What do you think about this model? Could it help progressing this Fugu uh, API project? Um, so I can't speak for Apple, but what I think uh, was happening is that they were very, very afraid of people abusing this API for spam. And um, if you take any layperson's Android phone and uh, you swipe through the past notifications, chances are that uh, you will have the layperson tell you, I never signed up for these notifications. I have no idea how to turn them off, but they just uh, reappear. So I think this uh, this experience uh, and just in general, people being very annoyed by push notifications in, in general um, is what made Apple consider um, having this API because there was a lot of um, user demand for it because there's a lot of very valid use cases. But then, um, yeah, the abuse potential is, is massive. So I think by being conservative and um, allowing this API only in the installed context, maybe at least to begin with, they try to see, um, yeah, what, what will people do with this API? If you use the Twitter PWA and install it and Twitter then can send you push notifications, that's great. But um, like any random news website that you just occasionally use um, whenever you um, 
use the DuckDuckGo Go engine uh, to find a news article, you end up uh, at a, whatever uh, the Guardian. Um, they should not be able to tell you uh, to to send you a push notification. So I think what is what is happening there is um, they um, were playing it safe, and I think that's a that's a very valid approach. Hopefully, um, once they see um, people use this API mostly for good, or people learn how to turn notifications down and off, maybe then in the end they will open up this API um, and yeah, just allow it to the what we call the drive-by web. Um, another interesting case where they chose to have some uh, additional obstacle um, is the Clipboard API. So I mentioned Clipboard before, but what is interesting about Apple's implementation is uh, when you paste something using the Clipboard API, they just on the fly insert an additional button where you, where you need to um, press Command V, for example, to like the keyboard shortcut to paste something. But then you also additionally on top have to press this on the fly generated paste button that will actually confirm a second time that you really meant to paste in there. So it's it's very in your face that a paste operation is happening. This is not part of the spec. This is just something that uh, they did as uh, their user agent differentiation to make this API more secure to their users. Um, to prevent unexpected um, yeah, things from happening. I think in general, this is also why um, what, what Bruce said in the very beginning is super important. Having different user agents, different browsers use the same and respect the same specs is great. And uh, letting some leeway for interpreting how certain um, spec steps should be uh, should be um, like executed is, is a great way to, to just differentiate also browser vendors um, in between themselves. I agree. Uh, people, certainly in the early days of HTML5, people would ask me, you know, why don't the browsers have a standard way of showing input type equals date or, or whatever? And uh, I'd say, you know, they deliberately don't try to standardize UI because that is a legitimate and, and necessary and important part of differentiation. And uh, inevitably, consensus occurs but that consensus occurs sort of organically and i have to say i mean putting my cards on the table i'm not always a fan of apple's decisions on ios and i know that might come as a surprise to many but i but i actually think they've done the right thing with uh, limiting push notifications to things that are installed and with the on the fly confirmation of a control v you know i think i think this is a, a good thing and it's why a lot of people choose ios devices you know pe people who are incredibly rich who want to throw money away they choose ios devices right at, right about him sure uh, i mean at the same time uh, from from mozilla point of view you mentioned this uh midi api uh so like on the fly extension mm -hmm. to support it i used i used to have a like drum practice pad uh with with some uh midi output built-in and they they used uh, Web Media API to to set it up, so I I could connect it via via USB and uh, access uh, some in, uh, internals. But uh, at some point, I had to use uh, Chrome to do everything. But having an option uh, to to install some sort of extension or to do something something weird, but still be able to achieve my tasks is is better than than nothing even installing it as a PWA or installing extra extensions or going into some deep dive into some settings and uh, set it up, it's it's better than nothing. So I think this this kind of approach might work, but I was I was wondering if like limiting uh, APIs realms seems like a good way to go or it would just destroy the, the compatibility and every browser would implement their own obstacles. 
This is a very, very interesting discussion there um, that we are entering. So an interesting API is the local font access API for giving your application access to the locally installed fonts on your computer. Mm -hmm. it, might, it might sound harmless, but actually it turns out fonts that you have installed very, very much um, are identifying you amongst others because it tends to be pretty unique. Like this one font that you installed for your daughter's birthday card and that you forgot about and that's still around, it sets you apart from all the others um, who did not install this, for example. On Google's uh, computers, um, there's a font called Google Suns um, that is essentially Arial, but like branded with Google. Um, so we don't have to pay Helvetica or whoever uh, some fonts, uh, fees, whatever. If you detect someone has Google Sans installed, this means this person is a Google employee. The way this works is uh, technically um, the API allows you to get access to the locally installed fonts. How browsers implement this um, could be a very interesting approach for making this API just less scary. So a browser could say, um, we give out all the fonts after you say, uh, I want to grant access. This would be like the most identifying um, case. A browser could also implement a subset and say um, the locally installed fonts are just the fonts that we know uh, every Mac user, every Windows user, whatever, um, has installed by default. So it would be a little less identifying variable. But if you then uh, essentially wanted to grant access to this one font that you installed uh, for your daughter's birthday, then of course this would not work. Another way to address this could be to just show an intermediate picker where you say, um, from all my installed fonts, I want to grant the web, applica web application access to this particular one uh, font that I installed for my daughter's birthday. So there's ways how browsers can can implement this. Back to notifications real quick. So um, people um, tend to think notifications are annoying, so um, they block them. If they know once once they found out how to block notifications from one particular site or even just globally, this is a signal that browser vendors can use. It's actually happening in Chrome now that um, if we detect that at scale, if you go to example.com and everyone opts into um, notifications, but then opts out or blocks them some days later, um, this is a good signal that in general, these notifications might be considered spammy. So um, you can use your knowledge about like the web in general um, that people use on your browser as a way to say, um, this seems to be a non-spammy site. So I show the notification um, prompt or it seems to be a very spammy um, site. And the way it works in Chrome now is you get a less uh, obtrusive notification that uh, says this site might want to um, ask you for push notifications, but it's not uh, a modal prompt anymore that gets in your way, but it's something that is sort of hidden in um, the URL. So I think this is also a way how Apple could have treated, or maybe they eventually will, um, treated this notification spam question. So permissions in general, this is a very, very hot topic with uh, some, uh, actually with all, I guess, with all Fugu APIs. Just following uh, some of the implementation bugs where you can see how the engineers implement uh, a given Fugu API. In many cases, the way the uh, prompt question that they ask you, like this app would want to use X on your computer, um, it could kill you or it could kill a kitten under your desk. Like the way um, the security team within Chrome wants the uh, notification prompt message to be formulated, um, this is a very, very heated debate in many cases. And um, we're always balancing, um, can laypersons understand this? Um, like something asking for HID access, like people will, would be like, what? Versus hardware access, this seems a little clearer, but like might sound too scary because people think like, oh, this can then block my keyboard or whatever. So long story short, permissions, um, this is a very, very important topic and um, like getting permissions right. Yeah, getting permissions in a way that 
regular people will understand them. It's very much an art. And um, we might not have arrived uh, at a super success story yet, but I'm like, I can tell you within Google, there's just in, in general, the browser community, um, there's a lot of innovation happening there. And uh, you will see this um, like uh, Safari being like a goldfish when it comes to notification, uh, not notification, uh, geolocation. Um, they will ask you every single time you use the Google search engine if you want to grant Google access to your uh, location. It's very annoying because some people might always want to, some people might never want to. But yeah, asking every single time, probably this is what causes um, prompt fatigue. And that's also very dangerous because if you see a prompt pop up and you just default no or default yes, um, then you don't no longer make this double, double negation. But let, let's leave it in. You don't no longer make uh, an educated choice. You just uh, click the prompt away. Um, so yeah, that's just something to, to consider. Um, Mozilla, I think they sort of uh, came up first with this idea of having prompts that expire. So you could say, I want to grant um, geolocation access to the site, but only for a day or so. And then the next day they would ask again, but not within the same hour. Yeah, I, I always wanted the geolocation prompting an opera to say you know not between 9 p.m and 8 a.m so because that's probably where i live um i actually want to give that away but you're right i mean permissions you ask the average non-tinkerer what's the dangers of telling a website which fonts i've got and they're going to be well how could that possibly be dangerous but those of us who are tinkerers know that it's a a really great way of fingerprinting that's just be we know this but you try and explain that to a non-tinkerer and it's time consuming so permissions tend to uh, respect something that we call in browser land the line of death i think eric lawrence from microsoft invented this term so essentially the idea is websites can paint um in the actual browser window but they cannot paint um in your bookmarks area or in your tabs area and so on so permissions would show above the line of death so um, that it's um, non-spoofable ui and um if you ever saw any kind of uh, these fake notification prompts or something or where people try to make a notification that looks like oh your uh, system is infected by a virus and it looks just like an actual windows uh, error message we wanted to make sure that this uh, ui spoofing could not happen with permissions Line of death, of course, is a desktop concept. Um, on, on mobile, it's different. So on mobile, you have like these kind of very modal um, and also by that uh, very annoying um, prompts that you just, you need to do something you, you can't do. Uh, you can't get away with uh, ignoring them or something. I think this is what, what makes permissions also very interesting. And this is why moving them around uh, freely may be dangerous, but also like there is there's some aspect to it. Like if I ask for camera access and the camera access does not happen like where I see myself uh, in the preview window, for example. This is not the context that, that I have right now. So maybe there is a chance of uh, innovating there and saying, um, I want to show the notification or the, the prompt closer to where um, the actual event will happen uh, and not always in the in the line of death area. It's, uh, I had no idea that browsing was such a, a dangerous occupation, the line of death puff of fish poisoning it's uh it's fraught with terror actually talking of terror there's got to be some degree of conflict inside google because whereas we all can guess at apple's rationale for not wanting the the browsers to be as powerful as apps google makes a lot of money 
from Android apps. Does it? Do you never worry that as you're wandering through the streets of Dusseldorf late at night that Sergey and Larry might jump you and beat you up and push you in a ditch because you're losing billions of pounds of App Store revenue, Play Store revenue, sorry. So I would actually be really happy if this happened um, just because, you know, it's been a while that I've seen them. Uh, I used to be once in Mountain View and stand in the queue at the food corner behind uh, Larry. These days, I guess it's it's just a very, very rare event for them to show up. Um, so I guess these days it would rather be Sundar who would be killing me with a knife I guess he would also send someone and not come himself. But anyway, so um, to your question, um, it's, it's a very interesting relationship that the Chrome team has with the Android folks. And as I said, there's a Chrome Android uh, team that sits in Android and uh, we talk regularly. There's a Play Store team, which is uh, part of Android, but also sort of distinct. But then the Play Store people also talk to the Chrome OS people because uh, you can access the Chrome, uh, the, the Play Store from Chrome OS devices these days. So it's it's complicated to begin with uh, in a, I guess, mostly positive sense. On the uh, Play Store, they do allow um, PWAs that are wrapped using something called Trusted Web Activity, which is essentially um, a full uh, screen web view that you can yeah like fill within uh, with with whatever content you like. But then when it comes to submitting these applications to the Play Store, of course you need to play by the Play Store rules, which means um, it's very complex when it comes to kids content. So if your if your content is targeted at kids, but you make um, random web requests, these random web requests could end up loading you know uh, any kind of adult entertainment imagery. Um, so it could be not tailored for kids. So um, when it comes to these kind of experiences, uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting and you need to be very careful. And uh, before you start that uh, approach, um, assess what is what is your app doing? Um, can it actually survive in the Play Store? Also, the Play Store obviously is a store where people can leave reviews. And uh, if you submit your app and it's not really um, well made, people might just leave one-star reviews and say, this is just a website. Um, it's not an app. And, um, of course, there's something that you don't want to happen to your brand. It has happened repeatedly where people just uh, yeah, submit web apps that are really not well made. They get these one-star reviews. So yeah, I think the, the store question, like to what extent um, does this lose money because people just go to the web or does it make money because people submit PWAs to the stores? Um, it's it's a very complex question. And um, I think openness uh, is, is the best part to, to address this. So um, being welcoming, but then of course, also as a store owner, you have to, you have to enforce the store rules uh, eventually. So uh, if you let in any kind of example.com uh, submission, don't be surprised when you when you get a one star review. So um, I think this is very much giving and taking there. Overall, people always say I want to be in the store with my or in whatever uh, App Store, Play Store with my with my PWA because people will discover me more. And I'm getting a, a like three letter um, whatever um, sex.com uh, domain name versus uh, having the term in your name and then people searching you. On the uh, on the Play Store and within the thousands of other apps that are listed there, competing and with the stores showing ads for competition, like this this whole discoverability um, argument, I don't know if I buy it that much. So I have a I have a like I played with the technology, of course. I have an app called SVG Code, which is a very unique name. Um, no other application on the Play Store uses this name, but if you search for SVG Code, um, it's super non-discoverable just because um, other applications that have more installs or that uh, also 
deal with SVG or whatever, they get listed before my ad, even if my term is super unique, but my domain name is something that is unique to me. And uh, like, I can even buy um, typo domains that would end up there as well. So I think the discoverability aspect, mm, yeah, I don't know. So we have, we have for sure educated people to look for apps on stores. So it's definitely on us to say, yeah, we need to re-educate them to, with a pandemic, everyone has learned to scan QR codes. So maybe QR codes are, are good. If you look at uh, the many apps ecosystem in, in Asia, um, they have some sort of barcodes. They're not technically um, QR codes, but barcodes that you need to scan with WeChat or with all these other super apps. So you know from the start as a user, oh, this, this looks like something that I can use WeChat to scan and then something will happen. I will end up in an experience that will allow me to to rent a bike or whatever. So I think it's it's just rethinking that is required to address this discoverability question. But apart from the discoverability, I think it's beneficial for uh, app stores, play stores, marketplaces to have uh, to allow PWAs because it definitely lowers the barrier for new developers. Like I have no idea how to publish Kotlin or Java or Swift based uh, application to the to the app store or play store. If you were a geek, you would know that. I mean, that's that's how we discovered that I'm just a tinkerer, not a geek. Uh, but but still, I can I can um, um, create some website or a web application and wrap it into PWA and publish it to, to Microsoft uh, Marketplace and uh, Google's Play Store as TWA, but not on Apple Store. And um, I guess there's no there's no competition between web applications and Play Stores marketplaces apart from App Store case. So if you duck duck went and searched for something like should I build a native app you would definitely find answers in both directions. And um, I think it very much also depends on um, what is the skill set that you have in-house already. So um, if you have uh, a cohort of Android developers, it's probably a good idea to build an Android app. And if you want to address the web then, and um, this is where something that I've been talking at the very beginning comes in, um, if you want to address the web then, then maybe compiling your Android app uh, that might be written in Kotlin to WebAssembly and then running this thing on the web might be a feasible alternative. And uh, I'm uh, very new to all of this, but like there's a there's a breed of new sort of compiled applications from other platforms um, that render everything on a canvas, throw away um, like everything we have learned from uh, building for the web. Like there's no DOM, there's no find and find and site, there's no extensions, there's no accessibility, there's no translate it's like all these affordances system browsers uh, have given you um, these things don't work anymore but on the other end you also need to think of um, if it were not for these new technologies like compiling a kotlin app to WebAssembly, um, certain experiences would not be on the web to begin with so um, i think there's also an argument to be made there like um, what is what is the end positive uh, is it having more apps on the web is it having one app less uh, just because i don't know it's not accessible to to non-sighted users and um, i'm very much a, an advocate for making things accessible like if you look at a flutter application and uh, you debug it a bit and you see there's this button that enables accessibility it's like what come on how can accessibility be something you need to enable like maybe we're in this phase in between where um, it's early days, we should not maybe bash immediately on any app that comes to the web and that is uh, rendered to a canvas and say it's a bad thing. 
maybe the, the technology needs needs to mature a little bit until we can we can actually use this for more apps in, in production. And to be fair, um, like the flat team, for example, they say we're not meant for content apps. Like if you build a new site, you should not build that in Flutter. Even the Flutter team themselves uh, say so. Like the pure existence of having this enable accessibility shows at least um, they have recognized that this is a, this is a problem. Um, but like going back to the initial argument, like um, what you have in-house might very much determine what, what you can do. So if you have web developers, um, maybe going to the Play Store with a TWA and going to the Windows Store with, uh, you know, just a PWA built app that you can then submit to the Windows Store is the way to go. And um, I think very much always carefully assess um, what is what is the use case that you want to address. Be sure that you respect local laws, like if accessibility is required by law, and um, I think that's a very, very good thing to require by law, then definitely abide to this law. And um, yeah, be sure you are open to, um, to to some of the limits of the technology today, but at the same time, also be open to to playing with it and asking these vendors, hey, um, we really need a, a way to figure out what does this canvas say in text? So can you somehow convey the information from the canvas pixels to the uh, accessibility object model, for example? I mean, not really part of this interview discussion, but maybe useful for listeners. I... Uh we made in my last job we made a, a new pwa we didn't actually make a pwa it just happened to be easily bag upable as one and just for experimentation i ran it through capacitor.js which is a free thing from ionic and it became a complete ios app that you could you know send to the app store it was an app but when i put it on my ios device it was it was still a PWA with all of the um, HTML semantics working perfectly well with VoiceOver. So it wasn't a, a native iOS app or a native Android app will have a heading, but it's only a, it's either something either a heading or a not a heading. In HTML, you get H1, H2, H3, H4, etc. And apart from the week-long download of Xcode and learning how to use Xcode, which Capacitor required, it was really really easy to do so yeah if you ever need to do that listeners you heard it here yeah pwa builder definitely helps with that um i wrote an article about this it's a cool open source project from or open source ish i guess a project from microsoft that allows you to convert your pwa into a windows app into even an oculus app so you can you can submit your uh, pwa to the oculus store and have people play with it in in vr i think that's that's the way to go but like i fully agree like uh, when when i looked into um, Apple development. The hardest part was not building um, an experience, like I, I built an extension, but the hardest part was figuring out what is the signing profile and like submitting and, you know, all these all these meta steps that, uh, that they make you do, yes. Let's maybe finalize with this one. Uh, 
what's the next big thing for Project Fugu uh, going forward? Because uh, I remember you started this project this project with this with a certain goal to implement some APIs, and you were doing so for for many years. Are you gonna keep doing this, or there's a bigger plan for that, or maybe it comes to an end at some point? So the the pace of uh, the team releasing new APIs definitely has uh, slowed down. So I would say right now we're in this phase where we can build a lot of applications on the web platform. We've seen amazing apps like Photoshop um, that work thanks to Wasm as well, but also just thanks to regular uh, DOM. They they work on the web and you can do a lot of amazing things with these applications um, on the web already. But then also there are certain APIs that are released, um, but they are not perfect yet. So if you go to vscode.dev, Visual Studio Code on the web, you can open a project file from your hard disk and um, make any kind of changes and edits. But then if you uh, reload the application the next day, you need to re-grant access to the files that you have already granted access to. So that's kind of a not nice experience as a developer because like, you know that uh, VS Code.dev should have access, access to uh, documents slash JavaScript or something. Even if you install it as PWA on desktop via Chromium, it will still ask for permission next day. It will right now still ask for permission, yeah. Right. Um, so one of the things we are trying to do is uh, we're thinking of persisting the permissions so that you can say, look, VS Code.dev can always have access to C projects or whatever. It's fine. I, I fully uh, acknowledge that. Um, versus uh, this kind of, uh, I don't know, convert A to B things that you uh, use the Bing search engine for to find any kind of random thing that can convert your A to B um, that you only use once. This should probably only have once access to your uh, C pictures, whatever folder, but not for the eternity of, of your lifetime. So I think these kind of refinements are very important for, for these uh, APIs that we started. I think with that, refining existing APIs, shipping the one or the other new API for sure. Um, if you look at the Fugu API tracker, there's a long list of uh, things that people have uh, requested that the team just didn't get to yet. Um, there's a long, long list of things to, to do. There's also something that is, that is going to happen. So um, there will be some partners that will request uh, a certain API, and this partner will be important enough, or the use case will be important enough, being asked by enough developers, that in the end, uh, the engineering team will pick it up and uh, address it. But then um, we talked earlier about these red lines. Um, there's also a new breed of applications that um, we were thinking about in the Chrome team, which is uh, isolated web apps. And um, the idea there is um, we have a couple of uh, really interesting use cases for um, like direct sockets. As I said in the beginning, it's a very dangerous API to grant access to in general because it could be used to bypass firewalls. But in the end, um, we have a lot of partners um, in the uh, um, application streaming business that have existing applications um, that stream apps or entire operating systems to a browser window. They need direct sockets because this is just how their streaming works. The use cases is a very, very valid. And um, if you think of, uh, of the use case a little closer, there's a lot of buy use cases. So um, if you think you go to a browser tab and you connect to a streamed Windows instance, you can full screen um, your browser tab. But at the same time, um, you still have in the end a window in a window. So Windows in a window that has Windows. So one idea would be uh, if we can make a seamless experience where just Chrome tab or the browser tab that this experience experience runs in um, becomes seamless and sort of says, I um, I forward all my closing um, notifications, like I'm getting closed now, I'm getting uh, maximized, I'm getting minimized. Um, you forward these 
um, click notifications over to the hosting operating system from the streamed operating system, that's a very interesting use case. Long story short, a lot of use cases um, that have some security constraints, like um, we said, direct sockets, bad idea. Um, also, like I would not be in the position to formulate this in a way that a lay person would understand why this is dangerous and why should I even allow this in a, in a prompt. But yeah, so for these kind of apps, there's this proposal to have isolated web apps that are apps that are technically built with the web, web technologies, but they are not part of the, the web in a sense of that you can't go to uh, whatever app.com and be there, but they would be installed um, from a store or they would be installed from a Chrome Enterprise admin and I'm like that rolling out to regular users. We brainstormed this idea first at uh, the W3C uh, TPAC and um, to, I think, most people's surprise, Apple and uh, Mozilla were very interested in, in listening to these discussions, actually kind of open to it. So there might just be this opportunity for having some use cases addressed with web technology, but just not on the open web. Yeah, I think this could close down the discussion there. Um, so there's use cases. Uh, Project Fu is not over, absolutely not. Um, there's a lot of refinement work to do. But yeah, the, the pace of new APIs has slow down a little but yeah we're also just discovering new use cases like going back to WebAssembly. um there was um like open office uh, compiled to WebAssembly, so you could run open office in a web browser um there's audacity like this audio editor that someone has compiled to WebAssembly, and obviously there's a lot of uh, fugu apis that you could um address with uh, those like opening an actual file saving back to it requires the file system access api or being able to paste a WAV file into this would require a new Fugu API for pasting and uh, copying um, WAV files to the clipboard, which I think today is, is not technically feasible. Um, so there's definitely, even with these new WebAssembly kind of uh, mind-blowing apps that people build or compile to to the web, there's new Fugu use cases that, will, that we will only just discover once we, once we get there. Streaming operating systems. Science has gone too far. Thomas, thank you very much for your time. It's really interesting to hear from the uh, from the horse's mouth. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having a fellow geek with you, uh, even if you are just tinkerous. But yeah, <laughs> it was fun talking to you. You too. And I shall um, I shall have a word with Sergey and Larry. So I think you're safe on the streets of Dusseldorf while they're still listening to me. Tell them to come back from their island and uh, just you know make Google great again. <laughs> <laughs> make google great again 2024 well that's it folks all um, from saturn and berlin and the surface of the sun says bruce signing off from the f word all right yeah thank you very much for having me um signing off too going back to the sun going back to the hot places and i'm um, developing new food guys so you all can hopefully cut the fugu fish right and not wrong and not die not dying is a, is a good plan for the weekend so we will meet you soon in the next episode of uh, f word uh, somewhere in may bye y'all cheers